This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or... Like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, 3 rs weekly custodial visit to the child within us all that finds the world at large to be mostly nuts. Tonight on Greening the Apocalypse, we will be discussing off-grid living, that often talked about place that many of us which wish to dwell, but which many of us don't necessarily understand. In the studio this evening to discuss the topic will be my good friend Stephen Pepper, so stay tuned for that. As always the co-conspirator, aficionado of the wonderful things, co-founder of the Global Permabits Movement and the originator of the as-yet-undiscovered David Attenborough Grieving Method, Adam Grubb. (laughs) The Dagum. What? David Attenborough Grieving Method. Oh, I like it. I didn't know it had an acronym. Is it dead? No, no, no. Thanks for branding it. Listen, so David Attenborough just put out a a thing. (laughs) I mean, he's still going strong, but there is going to come a day when David Attenborough is no longer with us. And what do we do then, Adam? And and one thing about David Attenborough, and I hate to say this, it actually pains me to say this, Mm. but I kind of feel like David Attenborough documentaries are better than actual nature. And uh, it's going to be a pain to lose him. Yeah. And almost like losing nature itself. Mm. And, yeah, I just had this idea that on the day that he dies, uh, nobody says anything. It doesn't go on social media. You have to know about it beforehand. Mm. It's just a quiet thing. You just get to your nearest zoo, which in Melbourne is the Royal Melbourne Zoo, Mm. and bring lots of gin and tonic and meet there at dusk. That's the way to do it, isn't it, Kate? Yes, to to die. No, to to grieve someone of that stature. Jen, yes. I should introduce you. Jen is the way to (laughs) grieve. In the rotating chair, direct from a petri dish of infection, utilising a husky Glaswegian Eartha Kitt-style vocal styling. I should have grammar-checked that one. Here's the magnificent Kate Dundas. Hello. How are you? You are far fewer huskier than I thought you were going to be. Well, I couldn't speak earlier on today, but Mm. I can now. So that's good. And thank the Lord for that (laughs) mercy. As always, the man who assembles the oral scaffold that keeps us from slipping to our doom, the two-wheeled one, Jed McCartney. Hello, Bushy. Hello. (laughs) You've just sneakily snuck on a cap. I have. Hell of the North. The Hell of the North was on Sunday night, our time. Uh, this is the Parry-Roo Bay I talked about last mm. week. 250 kilometres, over 100 on cobbles. Mm. And guess who won it? Rafa. Yeah. No. Oh. You did? No, no. go. An Aussie. Maggie yeah. Heyman, the second Australian ever to win it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, who's Rafa? It says well, Rafa on your hat. It's a brand name. You're oh. not allowed to say oh, brand name. I thought it was a man. So I've donned my, uh, <laughs> my pink Hell of the North cycling cap in yeah. tribute to Maddie Heyman tonight. An outstanding win. He beat Tom Burnham, who's won the race four times. Can by, I ask a question? Half a wheel. Is he a Melbourneian? Don't think so. He's from Canberra. Canberra. 
where the roads are fairly smooth. I just think that sounds like an, a cycling ordeal best trained for in the fair city of Melbourne. He's, um, he's a domestique. In, in the teams normally he's done lots of work for a lot of people i think it was his 14th time in the race mm. he's 37 years old probably not that far off retirement mm. and um just a fantastic effort and really well deserved that's amazing and and there's plenty of opportunity if you wish to train for the paris roubaix um to ride home um shit-faced from venues <laughs> on cobblestone laneways in uh, fact we in, would advise that ahead of using the roads well in fact if you go out the back door of the lane one there's a perfect cobble laneway to head yeah. down it might not take your home but it's cobbles we can lap up and down and practice and so forth each week we kick off the show with a chat about i'm feeling quite perky oh. uh, each week we kick off the show with a chat about what we've been looking at in a segment called what caught my eye so let's kick into that shall we kate would you like to kick into that i can yes so last time i think it was last week i spoke about the panama papers and how the rich elite are basically ruling the world uh and this week we'll continue along that um, strain of thought. So this article is called How the Wealthy Win the Fight for Public Space. Um, it appeared in The Age and the article's by Jefferson Kinsman. And it's about skateboarding and how youth, how the youth generally is a city. It's not just about skateboarding. Um, so he starts uh, by talking about how young people are being driven out of Lincoln Square so it's one of the most popular skating spots in Melbourne, enjoyed by many, many young people. Um, all sorts of cultures go around and skate um, Lincoln Square. However, we have seen the mayor of Melbourne saying that perhaps that's not what we want. We actually need to dig up and rebuild Lincoln Square so skateboarders can't skate there. Um which Jed, Jed. I, I walk through Lincoln Square quite regularly and uh, there are lots of skateboarders there and they're very respectful mm-hmm. of people walking through apparently there's a monument there to I think the Bali bombing mm-hmm. or the people who died I, yeah. I've not spotted the monument it's not substantial if it's there yeah there is a but, monument uh, there and the article discusses how sometimes the skaters might skate near it mm. but um he compares like little kids climbing over the uh, holocaust monument in berlin or pentagon staffers eating their lunch on the 9-11 memorial in washington you know why is that acceptable whereas skateboarding in the public realm isn't acceptable mm-hmm. however golf is very acceptable you know, so why... Oh, come and stick the boots in, go, go. <laughs> well, for one, if you walk down the Yarra, I mean, he talks about walking down the Yarra and you can see water being pumped out of the Yarra to irrigate lawns for golf, for rich people to play golf. You mm. know, why, why is it okay for rich people to have the golf courses wherever they want, but for young people, disenfranchised people, why is it not okay for them to be skating or to be doing other activities that potentially might cause noise, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Also... Why? <laughs> why? Why is it not okay for one particular group of young people to do what they do in a space? You know, they, they might be taking over. If you see lots of young mothers in a park, you know, do you say, oh, they're taking over the playground? Mm, mm. Or, you know, lots of, what else does he talk about? Lots of people parking in East Melbourne when there's the stuff on at the G. You know, that's, that's bad use of public space. Uh, personal trainers buy public land from council to train people. Again, why is that okay? And, mm. and skating's not okay. I agree. And, and in fact, I heard a complaint on uh, uh, 
I think it was the radio last week about personal trainers down in uh, near the botanical gardens or botanic gardens, sorry, that um, were ruining trees by hanging stuff off them for people to do, you know, chin ups or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And most of the people who walk around Lincoln Square are um, uh, are uni students anyway. Who, mm-hmm. You know, half of them commute to and from uni on a skateboard. Mm-hmm. But the point is. He, he ends the article by saying Melbourne may regard itself as the most livable city, but livable for who? Who's mm. the city designed for? Who is the city supposed to be for? We're, we're seeing uh, private, the privatisation of public space again and again and again. You know, corporate corporatization of public space. Mm. The city should be for free for us as people to use however we please. Awesome. Katie, that's fantastic. Very fired up. Um, I'll quickly, quickly touch on um, the complete opposite end of having to pay for public space was a beautiful chat I went to last week, which was free. It was Land Cultures. I was at Dalesford Town Hall, and it was a divine and delightful chat between David Holmgren and Bruce Pascoe, both former guests of the show. Um, It was put together by... Patrick uh, Jones, also a former guest of the show. I sat at one point, watched those three men up on stage and thought, how lucky are we to speak with these people? Um, And it was a very good Q&A and back and forth between Bruce Pascoe talking about a lot of the things he came to know about from studying to write the book Dark Emmy, researching heavily for that, and David Holmgren and him basically discussing how those old, very ancient Aboriginal land management methods uh, in a post-peak uh, energy world would be, there'd be some excellent crossover between, you know, so use of common land, public land, such as you are talking about, Kate, um, some fabulous methodology for uh, utilising all these very old, very ancient, very nutrient-dense foods that uh, were domesticated by the first Australians. Um, and there was a bit of a curveball in the night. So at the end of the night, there was this great Q&A session, and most people pretty much stuck to the topic of the land cultures. And there was this one fellow, and he got up, and he, I think he wanted to refute David Holmgren's position on energy and energy descent. And he addressed the whole room and talked about um, the concept of free energy and all these sort of different... Um, methodologies that um, supposedly exist for extracting free energy and David Holmgren was very polite and very succinct and he basically said that he believes the concept of free energy to be quite delusional this is the idea that you know we could set up a little magnetic wheel and get perpetual motion and so forth or hydrogen extraction from the atmosphere and um, he basically said we've had a couple of centuries of incredibly um, labor intense energy and with that we've managed to do untold damage labor intense well, you know, you don't just pluck oil out of the ground. You've got to get it and refine it and move it. And so it's it's got a high return on that energy invested, but it's still quite labour-intensive as a result. No, you, you know what I'm saying? No. Okay, so you don't just... It's not like a mag, It's not like a magnetic sphere that supposedly exists from which you can just put a thing in the corner and that's it. You're done. It requires effort. You've got to go out and get the thing. You've got oh, to I kind of disagree. It's about as near a thing as we've ever had to free energy ever. Well, this is the point. So this is what he went on to say, that despite the intensity of all these fossil fuels and the extractive method of them, <coughs> they've been quite damaging. If we were actually able to harness a true free energy, he, David, mentioned that that would probably be the complete ending of us all. Yeah. We would very quickly descend into what would no longer be recognisable as human mm. and do untold damage in next to no time because there'd be nothing to stop us. Wise point. Wise point. (laughs) Sorry to destroy your chat, Kate, which was quite uplifting and quite uh, quite inspiring. Adam. 
But why? 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 <laughs> no, no. So, basically, so free energy is allowed. Uh, energy, full stop. Fossil fuel energy has allowed us to do incredibly extractive things, like uh, and destructive things, such as deforestation on a large scale, mining on a large scale, all of these different things that have damaged the, the soil, the water, the air on a large scale. And David believes, and I, when I really went home and thought it through, that if you were then to switch to a free energy source without limits, that you would show no limits. I think it's I think it's almost irrefutable. We're not wise enough to handle it. That was the basic juxta yeah. of what he said. Yeah. Mm, good point. Go on. Uh, well, <laughs> it's, oh, it's a completely different tack. Uh, I was reading an article. It's quite an old one. It came out three years ago, but uh, it just came across my eyes. It's called, and excuse the US focus, it's called Living in America Will Drive You Insane, Literally. And it's by a psychologist called Bruce Levine. It's in it's on Alternanet. And he goes on to he talks about the epidemic of uh mental illness in the US, which is often talked about in Australia too. So I presume we have similar kind of issues. And he mentions that, for instance, antidepressant use in the US has increased nearly four hundred percent, fourfold in the last two decades. Uh Adolescents and children being treated for bipolar disorder increased 40 times in the decade up to 2003. It's just, like, mind-blowing. And he goes on to think about the potential reasons why this might might be. One of them is overdiagnosis. The DSM manual, that's the official list of mental uh, disorders, gets bigger and bigger, not smaller and smaller each year. So there's more things and some things which... Uh, would previously just be considered having a bit of a bad day uh, or just an eccentric personality, uh, which are now diagnosable. Mm. Uh, But it seems to be much more than that. One thing that comes out of overdiagnosis that he mentions is that uh, some of the drugs that are prescribed, there seems to be growing evidence that they themselves cause actual or extra... Um, psychological disorders and there's a um, book which looks really interesting on that called anatomy of an epidemic by robert whittaker he also um well he goes on to talk about what he thinks might be the issue though beyond not not dismissing those previous ones but one that is yet to be acknowledged as much and that is that we're just kind of like have lost a sense of engagement in society Mm -hmm. and one interesting fact he's got in here is that uh in the u.s a gallup survey a couple of years ago found that only 30 percent of workers were engaged or involved in enthusiastic about or committed to their workplace in con- in contrast to this 50 percent were not engaged and a full 20 percent were classified as actively disengaged which meant they hated going to work oh and put energy into undermining their workplace so one in five people are actively <laughs> Undermining the place they work. <laughs> oh, oh dear! Who set fire to the first aid cupboard? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he says that of nearly of the four, a lot of the four hundred diagnoses that um, psychiatry uses, underneath them all is the experience of helplessness, hopelessness, passivity, boredom, fear, isolation, and dehumanization. Uh, resulting in a loss of autonomy and community connectedness. And he points out there are stats like uh, in 1985, 10% of Americans said they had no confidence in their lives, one in 10. 
these days it's more like one in four Jeez. people have no one to speak to about their emotions or feelings yeah so uh anyway it seemed like a good lead into talking about being <laughs> yeah. um over investing in this culture has led is seems to be creating um i'm fascinated by this idea i've heard people from uh traditional lifestyles interviewed and it seems to be a conclusion they have that yeah it's physically harder mm. but when they've uh entered city life they find it more psychologically draining yep and uh that seems to be you know it's, it's nice to if you're out there feeling blue acknowledging that well just because you have all the material goods um and you're supposed to be feeling fine uh, actually this culture and all its entertainment industries and its work <laughs> systems which disconnect you from anything that feels meaningful and often you're involved in jobs that are quite destructive uh and don't have good feedback systems in them so you feel like you're engaged in it in the way you might be with your computer game when you get home mm. um yeah that's it's not necessarily your fault that you're feeling so crap it could just be this this slightly dehumanizing um just culture life that we're generally in. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness yeah. so we get and as a segue to our i don't know if we'd quite call him a dropout but <laughs> our guest tonight it seemed like a good one i call we'll him a dropout <laughs> uh indeed well his name is stephen pepper he'll be coming up in just a minute Three triple R. And triple R is where you are. Greening the apocalypse is the show. In the studio this evening to talk about the day-to-day reality of living off the grid is my good friend, a gardener, a co-op dweller, a Welsh choir singer, a storyteller, an owner-builder, 16 years a professional in renewables and the fittest neoceptogenarian I have ever met. Welcome, Stephen Pepper, to Triple R, as he tucks in that. Uh, go for it. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Now, listen, I've just created a new segment for tonight's show called Please Be My Performing Seal. Um, and I would like you, uh, you were born in Wales, and you, yes. unlike most of the world, can actually pronounce the name of the village in Wales. It is, in fact, the world's longest word. Can you please pronounce that here for us this evening? It is Sanvar Pushquingis Gorgera Chirndrobus Santisegio Gogogoch. Fantastic. It's a pretty little island in the middle of the Menai Straits. Mm. Um, and the, the, the name describes the position of it. Um, so it's a. Um, it's uh, St Mary's Church on the island next to the Whirlpool, um, <laughs> close to the white hazelnut tree opposite the red cave of wow. St Cecilia. And is that a zone one, two or three ticket? That's one. One. Beautiful. One. Yes. Can you, before we move on, do, could you do my middle name? It's, I, I, it's written Llewellyn. And I have no idea. I have no Welsh heritage. Why it, my parents chose it? It's pronounced Llewellyn. That's why. Yeah. But it should be pronounced Llewellyn, which Llewellyn. means lion of the lake. Right. I'm, I'm writing that down. A wet lion. That doesn't sound healthy. <laughs> <laughs> he can be. He can be on the shore. Okay. <laughs> Still, I learned something today. Fabulous. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you live off the grid. I know this because I, you, you and I are good friends. Um. How has it come to be that you are off the grid? You are nearing 70 years old, a time when most people aim for a bit more of a push-button existence and you're going the opposite direction. So maybe give us a bit of a backstory. Well, it's, it's more of a leisurely existence I was seeking. Um, I used to live in that corner of um, 
of North Melbourne in the intersection between Boundary Road, Racecourse Road and Flemington Road. Mm. So I had four-lane highways on all three sides, an overhead um, railway and an overhead um, motorway, as well as having two trams and being it's a very busy intersection from the point of view of having ambulances going to all those hospitals down Flemington Road. So I decided I wanted to move to the country. I wasn't well. Um, I was breathing lots of rubbish and eating lots of rubbish. So I decided I'd move to the country. And a friend of mine said, why don't you come and live next to us? Mm. Um, this was a friend that became a friend after they were a customer. They'd bought a solar hot water heater from me in my business and connected it up to their wood fire for winter boosting. And so they invited me up there, and I went and found myself a second-hand, actually it was probably fifth-hand, <laughs> classroom. Um, it was one of those demountable schools that uh, Julia Gillard liberated when she upgraded the primary schools. And they were selling them in Kyneton, in this big graveyard for demountables, for $4,800. Mm. So, for me, it was a no-brainer. So I just bought it without actually thinking too hard about it, unfortunately, because it costs a lot of money to move it and then to do it up to a Class 1 dwelling, which I had to do to meet the council requirements. Anyway, so why off-grid? Because the power poles were just the other side of the road from where I put this demountable classroom, but it was going to cost me $10,000 to connect to these wires and then i'd have endless bills so for about that same amount of money i bought some pv panels a battery bank and a generator and an inverter and a battery charger and i've been living off grid ever since day-to-day hmm. -day life of um of leisure it's so, I mean, the mo most basic inputs to a home are energy and water. In your case, you've got off-grid uh, battery array. So, you know, you utilise these that for light and um, heating and cooling in a regular house. But, you know, your house covers these input requirements in, in various ways. Do you want to just run us through a quick, so quick array of what, what you've got? Heating and cooling doesn't require me to use that, just because heating in the winter is done through a wood fire, which also doubles up as the boosting for my solar hot water on my roof. Um, cooling, I don't need cooling because I have, I'm living in a very efficient house. I, I have um, secondary glazing, so I've double glazed the whole house using EcoMaster's um, patented method. Mm -hmm. that you've had these people on the show, Morris and Lynn Baynett. Um, and I've also draft-proofed my house, again, using their patented materials. And I've insulated to within an inch of its life. Yeah. Underneath, on top, and the walls, everything's insulated. So I've, I've just recently had to put a hole, a vent, in my floor to uh, allow enough oxygen in to let the fire not go out. Um, so it's, it's thermally very efficient. Um, the other day it was 14 degrees outside and a very snug 24 degrees inside. Mm. Yeah, so I use my power for computers and um, television, sound system. On a sunny day, when I've got electricity to burn, I use an electric kettle and a toaster. Mm. Um, 
And I allow people to use hair dryers if they need to when it's sunny. And when it's not sunny, they have wet hair, cold tea, and plain yes. bread. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they wouldn't get cold tea because there's um, a gas cooker. Oh, that's right. So I've got a, a gas stove top that um, I use LPG to mm. to cook in the summer. We'll talk about that a little bit later on because that is kind of your last connection to the mainland, so to speak. But you've mm-hmm. got something coming up with that. Uh, so you mentioned that you do change your behaviour a little bit with the seasons. Are there, are there, are there other, th- other things or uh, things in general that you've had to do there, there's, to there's live a, off? a constant um, eye to the weather so that, you know, um, on, a cold, on a cold morning when the sun ain't shining, I, put, I grind the coffee with, with a hand grinder mm-hmm. and put it on the gas stovetop rather than use my lovely little cappuccino machine um so when the sun's shining and i've got a lot of battery left i use the cappuccino machine um yes and then there's the whole business of washing clothes um i need to use um the sun to dry the, the clothes but i also need the sun to run the pump to get the water to the washing machine and to operate the washing machine so washing clothes only happens on sunny days mm-hmm. Um, and the pump is actually quite a big consumer of electricity, so um, sometimes I have to go without a shower in the morning. But I'm British, so this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like washing that much. No. <laughs> uh, you just mentioned uh, washing the clothes, obviously water being an input there. Now, you've... You and I were chatting a little bit about this the other day that um, a lot of the systems in your house don't just take the one bite of the cherry. They're very, very layered functions. So the water coming in, how it moves through the house and how it eventually leaves is, is never a single use. You want to talk a bit about those systems? Yeah, so so um, my my grey water and my black water goes into a worm farm mm-hmm. um, and the worms chew their way through it and then the output of that goes out into a trench and that irrigates and fertilizes the ground just a little way from the house so black water for the uh, people pr- probably familiar with gray water it's stuff from the shower and from the laundry and black water is everything else right it's everything else the stuff you put through your toilet yeah <laughs> and so i'm imagining this isn't just one of those uh backyard from from uh the place that shall not be named um big hardware store um worm farms you're not doing your business into that. You have some other... No, no there's, there's a proper flush toilet. Um, I'd, I don't want to make the environment hostile to visitors, so I have a proper flush toilet with a system. Um, and there is the option of using paper, but mm-hmm. I personally use the old Asian douche method. This is um, too much information. <laughs> too much information? No, 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 you know, using paper, mm. um, and there's also the cost of buying the paper. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. So I, I prefer to do that, and it's actually a wash at the same time. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the water, you are obviously harness, you're harnessing rainwater, so you're very much responsible for making sure you've got enough to yes. do that. And so we're talking about reusing the water, so um, the the 
stuff from the laundry, because I use environmentally friendly detergents, um, they go out into a trench that feeds my orchard. Mm. Um, then I've got a separate rainwater tank that sits on my veranda, and that feeds into a um, herb garden that goes the whole 10 meter length of my veranda. And underneath this um, sort of bed, uh, so there are holes in the bottom of this um, herb garden, and that drips down into um, my um, raspberries and boysenberries and blueberries mm. and vines. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. Triple R is where you're at. Uh, Greening the Apocalypse is the show, and we are speaking with Stephen Pepper, good friend of mine, septuagenarian and dweller in the Macedon Ranges, who lives off-grid. Um, Kate? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about not living in the country and not being retired and not having loads of money to spend to get off-grid. But is there a way that you can do it iteratively in the city when you're a little bit time poor and cash poor? Um, the thing about any expenditure on this energy saving malarkey is that it's actually going to be self-financing. Right? So any money that you spend on PV panels and inverters, you're going to get that money back. So um, it's just a matter of having that upfront money to invest initially. Um, but if you can do that then obviously you'll get your money back. And getting off-grid in the city is is probably a little ambitious because um, the sun in Victoria isn't that reliable. So I sometimes have to either go to bed early or, and that's probably not feasible for people that work because you need your downtime, um, yes, or you have to run a generator and... You know, you'd be running a generator at a time when that would be hostile to your neighbours. <laughs> but what about... You have batteries in your place. I do. So I store all of my energy in batteries and then I draw from the batteries and the inverter converts the 24 volts into 240 volts. And you could do that in the city too. Um, and you don't actually have to go... Um, completely off-grid you can just have a battery um a set of batteries and you have to have a different sort of inverter a much more expensive inverter and then you can put the energy into the battery and draw that down because you've so, already invested so we can use the hairdryer and make ourselves a cup of tea and have a nice bit of toast yes. well you, you can you wouldn't have to compromise your lifestyle at all because you'll still be connected to the grid mm. because the the management system that drives your inverter and your batteries will say well when the batteries got to this point of discharge we just automatically switch over to the the grid mm. so the trick would be to have enough pv so, you know, five kilowatts is heaps. I've, I operate on 1.5 kilowatts, and I have as much electricity as I need. Um, so if you've got five kilowatts, which seems to be the sort of number that most people go for, then you'd need a large amount of batteries, and you could, you know, be 
almost off-grid um, and reduce your bills to next to nothing, but you'd still be paying the service charge. Mm -hmm. mm. So from an economic and possibly from an environmental perspective, it might not make sense to invest all that money in in batteries and the expensive inverter if you are in the city. Solar panels are great. Yes. But so solar panels have become very inexpensive yeah. Yeah, because of a world oversupply because mm. the ramping up of the production of PV panels coincided with um, the world's financial collapse. Not collapse, it was a, it was a hiccup. hiccup. <laughs> so, um, yeah, electricity is currently so cheap mm. that it's, um, it doesn't make sense economically to do that um, unless you're after that great feeling you know mm. um, so it'll take it'll take a long time to recover the cost of pv panels and that more expensive inverter and the batteries mm. and the management system you know i've i've heard figures around the 30 years payback period well your batteries would be not performing your, so your, well your, after that your, long anyway your batteries would probably need to be replaced Maybe between 10 to 15 years yeah. um, and the PV panels are, are warranted for 25 years mostly mm. I have just done a quick sum because we got PV panels last year on our house in Preston 5 kilowatt system and I think we'll pay it off in two and a half years however the battery because our bills are so low now to get to get our, our bills to zero with a battery the extra saving would take a long time to pay off because we're only saving years. a little bit more. Mm. Yeah, so maybe it's PV panels in the city and maybe batteries in the countryside. At the moment, at the moment, all yeah. of these things and are early changing. Can, early candlelit Battery, nights. Batteries are becoming cheaper. <laughs> Indeedy, um, we did mention just before uh, the the last track that you uh, sometimes use as a cooking backup your LPG bottle, cooktop, or barbecue. Um, but you've got um, plans afoot to switch entirely away from that with a methane digester. Do you want to talk a little bit about that plan? Yeah. So um, LPG gas is actually the only bill I have, So apart from petrol. Um, and I've got a Prius, so I run a hybrid car, so you know my petrol goes a very long way with my electric motor. Um, so I've been thinking about uh, a methane digester because... I might as well get off the LPG thing. And so I've got all the makings at home. I'm just about to put them together and start producing methane to put into my barbecue and into my gas cooktop for the summer months. In the winter months, I burn a log, uh, a wood fire, a slow combustion wood fire, which is also a cooker. So I have a kettle on the top and cook stews and things on the top, and I have an oven. Um, and I also have a water jacket in that fire. So I use my wood three times over. Heat the house, heat the water and cook. Um, yes, and then the methane... I mean, ultimately, I could find myself in a situation where I might be able to compress the methane and run my car on it. Nice or, one. Or other, or other um, motors. But I shouldn't mention that on air because the authorities will be after me if I try to do that. <laughs> They'll have to get past the me The oil first. companies, at least. <laughs> Indeedy. Um, just quickly, as we start to move towards the end of the chat, you've obviously taken 
you know, a professional background in, in, in renewables and off-grid activity and you have gone through this process. So I think it's about five or six years you've been doing this, isn't it? Was there a few obstacles or errors along the way that you've now come to realise are quite common stumbling blocks? What sort of things did you hit along the way that you would advise against for people giving this a shot? You've got me stumped. I, I actually can't think of anything that I would do differently in terms of, you know, the choices I made in, in changing my life because I've become healthier and um, more relaxed and... Um, more financially independent. Shit, yeah. Wonderful. Uh, well, have you guys got anything you'd like to ask Stephen? <laughs> I've just got these visions of you singing your Welsh songs in your house with your wood fire on, having a nice little party. Is that what you do? Um, I generally don't sing on my own because I do the harmony bits in a Welsh male voice choir. Oh. So it doesn't actually sound too good on your own. <laughs> it's it's that funny little note in the middle of the chord that actually doesn't make sense in a, in a melody. <laughs> <clears throat> it's the chord that I do. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't do that much singing. I listen to a lot of good music and um, I use my computer. I have a television which I run on the batteries. Um, and I do a lot of gardening, some of it with bushy here. Indeed. So is your food off-grid as well? It's getting there. Um, so we've got cows. Um, we've got two in the paddock and one in the freezer. Um, we've got chickens that um, we've just recently built uh, a nice paddock for in, in the orchard so that we've made that totally foxproof. So we've got five Coronation Sussex and a Cochin Rooster, and we're going to make little ones, which will grow into big ones, which we'll also eat. Um, we've got um, two orchards. We've got my new Espaliered Orchard with um, apples and pears and almonds and olives and apricots and cherries and most of the nuts, including hazelnuts mm. with, with French black truffles in the roots mm. um, and we've got a, a very mature plum and apple orchards in the with my neighbours Morris and Lynn um, and we've got a whole lot of new vegetable beds which we're just about to convert into wicking beds um, yeah so we're getting to be quite self-sufficient last night I made a chilli sauce um, using chilies from the garden and tomatoes from the garden, a bit of honey and some white vinegar, a bottle of white wine that I'd forgotten to drink. Three triple R. Thank you, Stephen Pepper, for coming down to talk about off-grid living. You're welcome. Thank you, Jed, for hitting the buttons in the correct sequence and keeping us going. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. It's so good to see you. And you're, you're back from the dead, which you weren't this morning. Yes. You get well properly, hey? Well, thanks, Richie. Awesome. And Adam, um, who are we going to talk to next week? Next week we have return guest Jodie Roebuck, one of the, oh, just one of the most inspiring yet humble uh, farm guys that we know. And he'll be talking about rotational grazing and the biointensive market gardening method. Can't wait. Uh, next week awesome bushy's my name we'll see you next tuesday until then have all the fun
This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.